0: Section six of the Court and Character of King James, whereunto is now added The Court of King Charles by Antony Weldon. This Librivox recording is in the public domain The Court of King James Part five Now are in hold the Earl, his Countess, Sir Thomas Monson, Mistress Turner, a very lewd and infamous woman of life Western and Franklin, with some others of less note of which one Simon, a servant to Sir Thomas Monson, who was employed in carrying jelly and tart to the tower, who upon his examination, for his pleasant answer, was instantly dismissed. My lord told him, Simon, you have had a hand in this poisoning business. He replied, No, my good lord, I had but one finger in it which almost cost me my life, and at the best cost me all my hair and nails. For the truth was, Simon was somewhat licorice, and finding the syrup swim from the top of a tart as he carried it, he did with his finger scum it off. And it was to be believed, had he known what it had been, he would not have been his taster at so dear a rate. And that you may know Simon's interest with that family, I shall tell you a story. Sir Thomas Monson was a great lover of music, and had as good as England had, especially the voices, and was at infinite charge in breeding some in Italy. This Simon was an excellent musician, and did sing delicately but was a more general musician than ever the world had, and in one kind he surpassed all. He had a katsu of an immense length and bigness, with this being his tabor-stick, his palm of his hand his table, and his mouth his pipe, he would so imitate a table and pipe as if it had been so indeed. To this music would Mrs. Turner, the young ladies, and some of that ging, dance ever after supper, The old lady who loved that music as well as her daughters would sit and laugh. She could scarce sit for laughing, and it was believed that some of them danced after that pipe without the tabar. His master coming to hear of it turned him away, who was infinitely importuned to take him again but would not. However, he could not have wanted a service elsewhere, but he never durst use his pipe amongst them for their dancing recreation, however he might for any other and now poor mrs turner weston and franklin began the tragedy mrs turner's day of mourning being better than the day of her birth for she died very penitently and showed much modesty in her last act which it is to be hoped was accepted with god after that died weston and then was franklin arraigned who confessed that overbury was smothered to death not poisoned to death though he had poison given him here was cook glad how to cast about to bring both ends together mrs turner and weston being already hanged for killing overbury with poison but he being the very quintessence of law presently informs the jury that if a man be done to death with pistols poniards, swords halter poison etc so he be done to death the indictment is good if but indicted for any of those ways but the good lawyers of those times were not of that opinion but did believe that mrs turner was directly murdered by my lord cook's law as overbury was without any law In the next place comes the Countess to her trial, at whose arraignment, as also at Mrs. Turner's before, were showed many pictures, puppets, etc., with some exorcisms and magic spells, which made them appear more odious, as being known to converse with witches and wizards. And amongst those tricks, Foreman's book was showed. This Foreman was a fellow dwelt in Lambeth, a very silly fellow, yet had wit enough to cheat ladies and other women by pretending a skill in telling their fortunes. As whether they should bury their husbands, and what second husbands they should have, and whether they should enjoy their loves, or whether maids should get husbands, or enjoy their servants to themselves without co-rivals. But before he would tell anything, they must write their names to his alphabetical book with their own handwriting. By this trick he kept them in awe, if they should complain of his abusing them as in truth he did nothing else besides it was believed some meetings were at his house wherein the art of a board was more beneficial to him than that of a conjurer and that he was a better artist in the one than other and that you may know his skill he was himself a cuckold having a very pretty wench to his wife which would say she did it to try his skill but it fared with him as with astrologers that cannot foresee their own destiny i well remember there was much mirth made in the court upon the showing this book for it was reported the first leaf my lord cook lighted on he found his own wife's name the next that came on the stage was sir thomas monson but the night before he was to come to his trial the king being at the game of more said tomorrow comes tom monson to his trial yea said the king's cardholder where if he do not play his master prize your majesty shall never trust me This so ran in the king's mind as the next game he said he was sleepy and could play out that set next night. The gentleman departed to his lodging but was no sooner gone but the king sent for him. What communication they had I know not, yet it may be can more easily guess than any other, but it is most certain next under God that gentleman saved his life, for the king sent a post presently to London to let the Lord Chief Justice know he would see Monson's examination and confession to see if it were worthy to touch his life, or so small a matter. Monson was too wise to set anything but fair in his confession. What he would have stamped with should have been viva virtue at his arraignment. The king sent word he saw nothing worthy of death or of bonds in his accusation or examination. Cook was so mad he could not have his will of Monson that he said, Take him away, we have other matters against him of an higher nature with which words, out issues about a dozen warders of the tower and took him from the bar. And Cook's malice was such against him, as, though it rained extremely and Monson not well, he made him go afoot from the guildhall to the tower, which almost cost him his life. There he lay a close prisoner above three months, to the end to get a recorder's place that Cranfield desired. Every man thinking him in some treason would not lend him any money. And if so much money had not been paid by such a time, his place had been forfeited and in this, let me commend the part of a true friend and Sir Humphrey May, who, in twenty-four hours, after Sir Thomas's deep sensibleness of all other his friends deserting him in that great exigency, made his brother Herrick take up two thousand pounds and pay it to save his office without so much as any security from Sir Thomas Monson, for he was close prisoner or from any friend of his and that you may know it was for his office only, this hard measure we showed him. The money was no sooner paid, but his friends might come unto him. And I must not let pass the skill of the Lord Loriskeen, a Scotchman, who long before by his physiognomy told Sir George Marshall that Sir Thomas Monson would escape hanging nearer than ever any man did, which was true, for he was twice brought to his trial, put himself both times upon his country, yet was only indicted, never tried, and yet he had harder measure than ever any man had, for he lost his office, being but indicted and not condemned, which is without any precedent. And now, for the last act, enters Somerset himself on the stage, who, being told, as the manner is by the lieutenant, that he must provide to go next day to his trial, did absolutely refuse it, and said they should carry him in his bed, that the king had assured him he should not come to any trial, neither durst the king bring him to trial this was in an high strain and in a language not well understood by sir george moore then lieutenant in elvis's room that made moore quiver and shake and however he was accounted a wise man yet he was near at his wits end yet away goes moore to greenwich as late as it was being twelve at night bounceth at the back stairs as if mad to whom came joe Leviston one of the grooms, out of his bed, and inquires the reason of that distemper at so late a season. Moore tells him he must speak with the king. Leverston replies he is quiet, which in the Scottish dialect is fast asleep. Moore says you must awake him. Moore was called in, the chamber left to the king and Moore, he tells the king those passages, and desired to be directed by the king, for he was gone beyond his own reason. To hear such bold and undutiful expressions from a faulty subject against a just sovereign. The king falls into a passion of tears. On my soul, Moore, I wot not what to do. Thou art a wise man. Help me in this great strait, and thou shalt find thou dost it for a thankful master, with other sad expressions. Moore leaves the king in that passion, but assures him he will prove the utmost of his wit to serve his majesty, and was really rewarded with a suit worth to him fifteen hundred pounds although annandale his great friend did cheat him of one-half so was their falsehood in friendship sir george moore returns to somerset about three next morning of that day he was to come to trial enters somerset's chamber tells him he had been with the king found him a most affectionate master unto him and full of grace in his intentions towards him but said he to satisfy justice you must appear although return instantly again without any further proceedings. Only you shall know your enemies and their malice, though they shall have no power over you. With this trick of wit he allayed his fury and got in quietly about eight in the morning to the hall, yet feared his former bold language might revert again, and being brought by this trick into the toil might have more enraged him to fly out into some strange discovery. For prevention whereof, he had two servants placed on each side of him, with a cloak on their arms, giving them withal a peremptory order, if that Somerset did any way fly out on the king, they should instantly hoodwink him with that cloak, take him violently from the bar, and carry him away, for which he would secure them from any danger, and they should not want also a bountiful reward. But the earl, finding himself overreached, recollected a better temper, and went on calmly in his trial where he held the company until seven at night. But who had seen the king's restless motion all that day, sending to every boat he saw landing up the bridge, cursing all that came without tidings, would have easily judged all was not right, and there had been some grounds for his fears of Somerset's boldness. But at last one bringing him word he was condemned, and the passages all was quiet. This is the very relation from Moore's own mouth, and this he told verbatim, in Wanstead Park to two gentlemen, of whom the author was one, who were both left by him to their own freedom without engaging them, even in those times of high distemperatures, unto a faithful secrecy in concealing it. Yet though he failed in his wisdom, they failed not in that worth inherent in every noble spirit, never speaking of it till after the king's death. And there were other strong inducements to believe Somerset, knew that by the king he desired none other in the world should be partaker of and that all was not peace within the peacemaker himself for he ever courted somerset to his dying day and gave him four thousand pounds per annum for fee-farm rents after he was condemned which he took in his servants names not his own as then being condemned not capable of and he then resolved never to have a pardon i have heard it credibly reported he was told by a wizard that could he but come to see the king's face again he should be reinvested in his former dearness with him this had been no hard experiment but belike he had too much religion to trust to wizards or else some friends of his had trusted them and been deceived by them that he had little reason to put confidence in many believed him guilty of overbury's death but the most thought him guilty only of the breach of friendship and that in a high point by suffering his imprisonment which was the highway to his murder and this conjecture i take to be of the soundest opinion for by keeping him out of the action if it were discovered his greatness fortified with innocency would carry their nocences through all dangers for the gentleman himself he had misfortune enough to marry such a woman in such a family which first undermined his honour afterwards his life at least to be dead in law nor did anything reflect upon him in all his time of favourite but in and by that family first in his adulterous marriage then in so hated a family and the bringing in cranfield and ingram as projectors all by his wives and friends means otherwise had he been the bravest favourite of our time full of majesty employing his time like a statesman and the king kept correspondence with him by letters almost weekly to his dying day and here have we brought this great man's glory to its period with his fatal countess who some years after it died miserably at chiswick mistress turner weston franklin and elwes died in the tower weston ever saying it never troubled him to die for the blue ribbon's sake and so was concluded that grand business the gross production of a then foul state and court wherein pride revenge and luxury abounded yet and it's verily believed when the king made those terrible imprecations on himself and deprecations of the judges it was intended the law should run in its proper channel but was stopped and put out of course by the folly of that great clerk though no wise man sir edward cook who in a vainglorious speech to show his vigilancy enters into a rapture as he then sat on the bench saying god knows what became of that sweet babe prince henry but i know somewhat And surely, in searching the cabinets, he lighted on some papers that spake plain in that which was ever whispered, which, had he gone on in a gentle way, would have fallen in of themselves, not to have been prevented. But this folly of his tongue stopped the breath of that discovery, of that so foul a murder which I fear cries still for vengeance. And now begins the new favourite to reign, without any concurrent. Now he rises in honour as well as swells with pride breaking out of those modest bounds which formerly had impaled him to the high way of pride and scorn turning out and putting in all he pleased first he must aspire to the admiral's office himself and and would not let the old gentleman so well deserving in that place die with that title but the king must put himself to a great charge to put out the better and take in the worse yet for all his immense greatness would he never let him be admiral until he had first settled to robert mansell vice-admiral of england during his life by patent in which he not only manifested his love to his noble friend though sometime his servant but his care to the state that his experience and abilities might support the other's inabilities well knowing that the honour and safety of the kingdom consisted in the well-ordering and strength of the navy Next. Edgerton had displeased him by not giving way to his exorbitant desires. He must out, and would not let him seal up his dying eyes with the seals which he had so long carried, and so well discharged, and to despite him the more, and to vex his very soul in the last agony, he sent Bacon, one he hated yet to be his successor, for the seals which the old man's spirit could not brook, but sent them by his own servant to the king, and shortly after yielded his soul to his maker and to the end you may know what men were made choice of to serve turns, I shall set you down a true story. This great favourite sent a noble gentleman and of much worth to Bacon with this message, that he knew him to be a man of excellent parts, and as the times were, fit to serve his master in the keeper's place. But he also knew him of a base and ingrateful disposition, and an arrant knave, apt in his prosperity to ruin any that had raised him from adversity. And yet for all this he did so much study his master's service, knowing how fit an instrument he might be for him, that he had obtained the seals for him. But with this assurance, should he ever requite him as he had done some others to whom he had been more bound, he would cast him down as much below scorn as he had now raised him high above any honour he could ever have expected. Bacon was at that time Attorney-General, who patiently hearing this message replied. I am glad my noble lord deals so friendly and freely with me and hath made that choice of so discreet and noble a friend that hath delivered his message in so plain language but saith he can my lord know these abilities in me and can he think when i have attained the highest preferment my profession is capable of i shall so much fail in my judgment and understanding as to lose these abilities and by my miscarriage to so noble a patron cast myself headlong From the top of that honour, to the very bottom of contempt and scorn? Surely my lord cannot think so meanly of me.' The gentleman replied, "'I deliver you nothing from myself but the words are put into my mouth by his lordship, to which I neither add nor diminish. For had it been left to my discretion, surely though I might have given you the substance, yet should I have apparelled it in a more modest attire. But as I have faithfully delivered my lords to you, so will I as faithfully return yours to his lordship. You must understand the reason of this message was his ungratefulness to Essex which everyone could remember, for the earl saved him from starving, and he requited him so as his apology must witness. Were there not a great fault, there needed no apology. Nor could any age but a worthless and corrupt in men and manners have thought him worthy such a place of honour. Well, Lord keeper he was, for which he paid nothing, nor was he able. For now was there a new trick to put in dishonest and necessitous men, to serve such turns as men of plentiful fortunes and fair reputations would not accept of. And this filled the church and commonwealth full of beggarly fellows, such daring to venture on anything, having nothing to lose. Poor it is riches makes men cowards, poverty daring and valiant to adventure at anything to get something. Yet did not Buckingham do things gratis, but what their purses could not stretch unto, they paid in pensions out of their places, all of which went to maintain his numerous beggarly kindred. Bacon paid a pension, Heath, attorney, paid a pension, Bargrave, Dean, paid a pension, with many others. Nor was this any certain rule, for present portions must be raised for the marriage of a poor kitchen maid to be made a great countess. So, Fotherby, made Bishop of Serum, paid three thousand five hundred pounds, and some also worthy men were preferred gratis to blow up their fames and trumpet forth their nobleness, as Tolson, a worthy man, paid nothing in fine or pension after him, Davenant in the same bishopric, but these were but as music before every scene, nor were fines or pensions certain, but where men were rich, there fines without reservation of rent, where poor and such as would serve turns there pensions no fines so western and many others there were books of rates on all the offices bishoprics, rick's deaneries in england that could tell you what fines what pensions otherwise it had been impossible such a numerous kindred could have been maintained with the three kingdoms revenue now was bacon invested in his office and within ten days after the king goes to scotland bacon instantly begins to believe himself king lies in the king's lodgings gives audience in the great banqueting house makes all other councillors attend his motions with the same state the king used to come out to give audience to ambassadors when any other councillor sat with him about the king's affairs would if they sat near him bid them know their distance upon which secretary winwood rose went away and would never sit more under his encroached state but instantly dispatched one to the king to desire him to make haste back for even his very seat was already usurped at which i remember the king reading it unto us both the king and we were very merry and if buckingham had sent him any letters would not vouchsafe the opening or reading them in public though it was said requiring speedy dispatch nor would vouchsafe him any answer in this posture he lived until he heard the king was returning and began to believe the play was almost at an end he might personate a king's part no longer and therefore did again reinvest himself with his old rags of baseness which were so tattered and poor at the king's coming to windsor he attended two days at buckingham's chamber being not admitted to any better place than the room where trencher-scrapers and lackeys attended there sitting upon an old wooden chest amongst such as for his baseness were only fit companions although the honour of his place did merit far more respect, with his purse and seal lying by him on that chest. Myself told a servant of my lord of Buckingham's it was a shame to see the purse and seal of so little value or esteem in his chamber, though the carrier without it merited nothing but scorn being worst among the basest. He told me they had command it must be so. After two days he had admittance at first entrance he fell down flat on his face at the duke's foot kissing it vowing never to rise till he had his pardon then was he again reconciled and since that time so very a slave to the duke and all that family that he durst not deny the command of the meanest of the kindred nor oppose anything by this you see a base spirit is ever most concomitant with the proudest mind And surely never so many brave parts and so base and abject a spirit tenanted together in any one earthen cottage as in this one man. I shall not remember his baseness, being out of his place, of pinning himself for very scraps on that noble gentleman Sir Julius Caesar's hospitality, that at last he was forced to get the king's warrant to remove him out of his house. Yet in his prosperity, the one being chancellor and the other master of the rolls, Did so scorn and abuse him as he would alter anything the other did. End of section six.